the air conditioner apparently wants us to be in Philippians 4, but we are going to be in Philippians 2 this morning. If you haven't been able to be with us the last few, last few weeks, certainly the last two or three, Paul is really driving this idea of unity. You might have noticed the, uh, the ropes as you came in this morning that are blocking off the last couple of rows. Man, got to learn to sit together. Got to learn to uh, be close together. That is a physical representation of what unity is, right? It's being close together. And so those of you who said, man, I really don't like sitting close to people. Well, unity is hard to do if you're not going to be close to people. So we're going to have to learn to be close together. Uh, hopefully the stage doesn't get too crowded at certain points, but, uh, but we're going to have to learn to be close together. So last week we were in verses 27 through 30. Let me, just, let me just bring us back up to speed. Paul's basic idea in there is writing these Philippians and his, the imperative that he offers is let your lives be worthy of the gospel. He says be worthy of the gospel and then he goes out and he kind of parses that out a little bit. He says, you know, whether I come to you or not, be worthy of the gospel. Stand together. Strive together. And then as he draws the passage to a close, he hits them with this. He says, it has been granted to you that you have belief in Christ. That God has granted that to you. God gave you belief in his son. And they read that like, that's fantastic. Thanks so much for that, God. And then Paul couples it. He says, it's also been granted to you. It's also been given to you. That you should suffer for his name. And they read that. And the temptation is to say, thanks for the belief. Do you have some with less sodium? Do you have some with less persecution? You know, I'm sorry, I wanted to die of Christianity. Paul's like, that's not on the menu. That's not on the menu. You see, Christianity, as we identify with Christ, necessarily means that we suffer, that we share in his suffering. And so he's writing them this. They receive this word. And now today in our passage, he's going to try and buttress their position. He's going to try and lend support to them based upon what he's just said. But keeping in mind that throughout, really throughout verse, about verse 17 of chapter 2, this idea is still being pressed hard upon them that they need to be worthy of the gospel. That their lives need to be worthy of the gospel. So that, that theme kind of drives its woven in through this. For us today as we deal specifically with how we unify together. And then next week as we look at an amazing passage. We talk about Christ as the highest servant. Christ who humbled himself. So we're going to see that, that idea continue to be woven in. Let me read for us verses 1 through 4, chapter 2. Paul writes to the Philippians and he says, So, if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Verse 3, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you not look only to his own interest, but also to the interest of others. So Paul opens this passage up, and he, he has this so, or maybe if you have the NIV, it says therefore. And so he's drawing upon the basis of what he's just said, and he's beginning to work this out. And he says, so, if there's any encouragement in Christ, and we see these if statements, and the temptation is we read those, if somebody came up to you and they said, uh, uh, 
if I show up tomorrow, I'm going to be in a good mood. I mean, that's, it's, it's, it's a potential, right? There's potential that they show up tomorrow, and even more potential that they may or may not be in a good mood, kind of depending on if it's raining, or the joints aching, what do they see on the morning news. I mean, there's a variety of issues in place. And so they're pointing at a possibility. Paul isn't pointing at a possibility. What it's using is a little bit of rhetorical flourish. What he's pointing at is, man, these things are absolutely in you. So although we read if, what he would have them answer with is absolutely yes. To each one of these potentialities that he puts before them, they answer with a resounding yes. He says, if there is any encouragement with Christ, which they would say, yes, absolutely, there's encouragement from Christ. You see, because what Paul is pointing to is this, in the midst of this persecution, in the midst of this suffering that you're going to face as a Christ follower, there are four things that you can rest assured of they are going to keep you in the midst of those sufferings. And the first one of those that he wants to, wants to draw their attention to is encouragement in Christ. You see, inasmuch as they have received salvation from God and actually reside saved, they have encouragement in Christ. The Holy Spirit has come alongside them, has indwelt them, and gives them comfort, gives them encouragement in the midst of the sufferings. He goes on and he says, any comfort from love. Any comfort from love. You see, just as much as the encouragement is more than just an attaboy, as I see uh, somebody in this congregation, nobody in particular, as I'm looking at everybody, struggling with something, and I come along and I just smack you outside the back and say, Hey man, be encouraged. You're like, my back hurts. That's what I need. I need back, back, feel a little better. And you should slap me in it. You see, just as the encouragement we receive in Christ is more than an attaboy and slap along the back, so this comfort from love is more than just, just a giddy feeling. It's more than just being happy. It's more than just this transient happiness or love that seems to pass in and out of relationships so readily. You see, because this love stems from Christ. This love stems from Christ, and it's our experience of Christ's love, again, tied to salvation. In salvation, we have encouragement from Christ, and we have His love that supports us, His love that is a source of encouragement. Next, he says, participation in the Spirit you remember last week there was some discussion as to whether Paul was talking about spirit as in an attitude, a spirit of camaraderie. As he said, stand firm in one spirit. It's when you and I, we had this dialogue back and forth, and some of us said, no, it's absolutely camaraderie. And the other group said, no, no, trust me, it's the Holy Spirit. And so we kind of weighed that out, and we said, well, it's probably both at play. Well, here, again, not really. Here, it is absolutely the Holy Spirit. Paul says, if there's any participation in the Spirit. Now, in 1.5, as Paul was you know, coined, writing this out, having this written out, and as the Philippians were having this read to them, what they would have recalled when they heard uh, this verse, chapter 2, verse 1, read to them, they would have recalled earlier. They would have recalled earlier for us, it's 1.5, which Paul writes, because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. You see, partnership there and participation here translate the same word which rendered a lot of other places as fellowship. 
their, their fellowship, their partnership, their participation is in the advancement of the gospel. And they do so here in verse 1 by their participation in the Holy Spirit. You see, as believers together, we don't see the Holy Spirit solely residing in one person. And, you know, there's a wall that blocks the Holy Spirit from moving in my life to moving in Charles' life, from moving in Charles' life to moving in Patty's life. See, the Holy Spirit is moving in and through all of us. As believers in Christ, the Holy Spirit dwells inside of us, but He gives us fellowship, participation with one another because we are of the same spirit. There's not different spirits in me and in Charles and in Patty, but there is one spirit. We are all called by God. We are all saved by the Son. We are all indwelled by the Spirit. We have participation in the Spirit. Paul's building a case that what he's going to drive at is unity. And we can't have that unless we readily recognize that we have participation in the Spirit. Lastly, he says affection and sympathy. Affection and Sympathy. Now these are kind of tag-on words that we see at the end of this. We see there's a very real difference between being affectionate and having affection. See, Paul's not advocating that the Philippians get together, that they, you know, link arm in arm, they walk down the street and they stop and they just kind of rub the other guy's shoulder and be like, man, I'm, I'm pouring out some affection on you. And he's like, I don't like being touched. Show me affection over there. And he's like, I can't reach you. See, he's not talking about this silly type of affection where it's just, you know, you know kind of this you know, Christian heavy petting of, you know, just like, oh, you're so nice. Let me just, oh, I just want to love on you. I just want to hold your hand. I just want to walk down the arm, you know, hand in hand and kind of through life. You know, the guy's like, no, I don't think that's what Paul's saying. You see, what he's driving at is that we have this deep sense of bondedness with one another. For him, this idea of affection is, is very indwelt inside of us, this yearning to want to be closer together to one another. Never satisfied with surface-level conversations to where when I walk up and ask somebody, how are you doing? And they say, you know what, I'm doing okay. But in reality, this person is dying inside. In reality, this person is suffering with sin. In reality, this person's home life is so vulnerable. If there's any affection, if there's any bonding of us together, and then if there's any sympathy. You see, you and I are able to be sympathetic with one another. We're able just to, be, to have affection for one another because Christ showed affection to us. Because Christ poured out sympathy upon us. Matthew 5, 7, we read, The blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. You and I are recipients of mercy. And so in like term, we are able to be merciful to display affection and sympathy to those gathered in our body that so badly need affection and sympathy. Now, in verse 2, Paul turns. And this is really interesting. Paul begins to show his pastor's heart. He really begins to show how his heart just works and what his longings are for the Philippians. Paul, as you'll remember, is sitting in jail. Freedom's restricted. Access, you know, to, to just a great deal of experiencing freedom is restricted. He's suffering. And so when he says, you know, thus and so will make my joy complete, we're thinking it's, you know, like padded handcuffs, air conditioning, uh, that Imperial Guard Joe would bathe more frequently. 
that his bed would be softer, that he'd have more substantial nourishment, right? Shorter prison term, friendly emperor. But when he writes to them and he says, complete my joy, none of that comes up. I mean, it's, it's just not there. What he says, when he says, complete my joy, really drives to the unity of Philippians. So hundreds of miles away, separated by land, separated by condition, separated by experience. Paul's word to them is, if you want to complete my joy, if you want to do something great for me, be unified. See, because Paul's understanding is the Philippians, with these early seeds of contention, with these early seeds of, of preference rearing its ugly head and driving hard at sin, his understanding is these things can be defeated. They can only be defeated if you guys will actually come together. So that's what he begins to tease out. And this again is tied to 127. As we live and we have our lives be worthy of the gospel, we do so in a unified manner. And so he tells them, he says, first, that we need to be of the same mind. They need to be of the same mind. They need to think the same thing, set their mind on the same things. Now, this is not a group of people coming together and saying, all right, now look, we've got this thing from Paul, and he says what we need to do is be of the same mind. And so let's, let's form a team, and let's, let's have this team begin to, to write out how we can go about being of the same mind. And one guy says, well, I know what we can do. We can have one thing a week, and that's all we think about all week. And this is a very simple-minded group. And they say, you know, that sounds like a really good idea. I'm pretty sure that's what Paul is going for. And so they write out, you know, be loving. And so all week you're like, what's on your mind? Like, be loving. Anything else? No. Can't have it. You know, y'all got to be in the same mind here. Paul's not driving at, you know, trying to make people into automatons. He's not driving at mindless obedience. What he's driving at is that their soul-identifying characteristic is that we be so captivated, so drawn in at advancing the gospel that, that everything else is understood through that screen of obedience. You see, as we begin to look at advancing the gospel and doing what it takes to, to be a body of soul transformation in this town and in this community, then our sole thought is how do we glorify God? Our sole plan is advancing the gospel. And that's what Paul wants them to understand. He says, having the same love. Man, this is just loving the people that you do church with. Loving the people that you do community with. Paul has this understanding that, that where love abounds, there is forgiveness. Where love abounds, unity can reside. I'm also reminded that in 1 John, John writes, starting in chapter 3, verse 16, he says, by this we know love, that he laid down, that Christ laid down his life for us. And we ought to lay down our lives for, for the brothers. And in verse 17 he flips it and he says, guys, but if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? You see, as we have opportunity, as we have the ability we need to be helping people in a physical way. 
We need to be loving people, yes, with our attitudes, with our thoughts, with our words. Man, we've got to put some feet on faith. We've got to make faith be in action in our body and in our lives. We need to find ways to love on people, find ways to support the missionaries who are residing in foreign countries, loving on people. And then we need to find a representation, a manifestation in our own lives where we take opportunity to love on people. We need to love on people who aren't always easy to love on. So we need to find that guy that doesn't like being touched, doesn't like being you know, rubbed on, and find ways to love on that guy in spite of being able to reach out and rub his back. That's difficult. You see, love, loving people that are easy to get along with, a husband loving his wife, Loving your children when they're in a good mood and they're not grumpy. I mean, these are easy ways to love on people. But loving people that are difficult, that have different life experiences than we do, that have different, have different value sets necessarily than we do, or different preferences, certainly. I mean, that's the call of the gospel. That's the call of the gospel. Having the same love. He says, being in full accord. Paul here paints the picture that he uses this word which really gives us an idea of being joined at the level of soul. Not that we're walking through life hand in hand. Not that we're, you know, linking arms and going through difficult things together. But that our very souls are joined together. I mean, that just radically changes the depth at which he says we need to be joined to not one another. We need to be soul joined to one another. So at that level, we experience sorrows together. We experience joys together. We go through difficult times, and we go through good times together. And it's only at being soul joined together that we can have any hope of unity. And then, I'll be honest, when I came across this last one, I struggled for how to, how to relate it. Because he says, he says, you know, being in full accord, and then he says, end of one mind. And I thought, surely Paul is, is trying to communicate some nuance of, of, of the same thought that he came to in the beginning. So I spent a lot of pretty fruitless hours, you know, going over this word and looking at it, his position in the sentence, and his relationship to other words, and exactly what he might be trying to communicate. And then after the end of all those fruitless hours, came to the understanding that Paul realized that some of us need to hear things twice. You see, it's the same idea, the same understanding, that we need to have one mind, that we need to be of the same mind. And then he comes to it again at the end. He says, hey, in case you forgot about it, I said of one mind. You see, we need to be about one thing. We need to be about advancing the gospel. We can't stress that enough. We can't say that enough. And really, until it starts to become part of our lives, we haven't believed it. We haven't believed it. You see, moving through these, these really positive things about how they can complete Paul's joy, he turns and he gives us two negatives. He turns and he gives us two negatives. He says, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit. Now, there is a, there's a problem with my methodology of preaching short bits of text on Sunday mornings. And I'm, I'm acutely aware of it. You see, when we go through and we do four verses this week, next week we're going to do, I think, seven. There's a separation. It's almost like I punctuate in your minds units of thought. And so when I ask you, I say, Kelly, what was today's sermon about? You're like, well, why is he talking to me in the middle of the sermon? 
But if you answer, you would, you would have this you know, four-verse understanding of what it's about. Or maybe you relate it back to verse 27. But when the Philippians were engaged with this, they'd gather around and one person would read this whole thing. And they'd likely read the whole thing all at one time. And so words from the first part of the address would tie into words later on in the letter. And so they're hearing things, you know, just boom, boom, boom. But for us, there's, you know, weeks separation from what was said halfway through the first chapter to what is said now. And I preface that because this is what Paul is doing here. When he's talking about selfish ambition and conceit, you remember when we talked about there's two groups of people in, in, in Rome and they're out and they're preaching the gospel and there's those that do it from, from good intentions and there's those that do it from bad intentions. We said the good ones do it because they love God and they want to see the gospel advance. And we said the bad ones do it, I think I typified them as jerks, we said those guys go out and they do it because they want to be famous, because they want to have notoriety, because they want to have some type of recognition in town, right? And so the word he used... In 117, it says the former proclaimed Christ out of selfish ambition. And here in verse 3, he says, do nothing from selfish ambition. And so he's bringing to mind these people that are out and proclaiming the gospel, but they're doing so with false motives. And in essence, he says, don't be like them. Don't be like them. He says, absolutely, don't do anything to to build up self. Don't do anything to build up self. And then don't do so for, for conceit. You see, conceit desires glory for self. Conceit and selfish ambition, what they really do is they take the glory that belongs to God and they help it to come around and reside in me. So if my primary motivation for standing before you and preaching or sharing the gospel with those in community, or, or spending hours working on a service, or, or, or any of the things I do, if I do that so that I look good, I've missed it. And if you work in the nursery, or you work in benevolence care, or you work doing any of the other numbers of things, and your primary reason for doing it begins to shift towards or shift away from that God might be glorified to that you might be recognized so that your name could go in a plaque so that people would say, man, remember when uh, John Smith stood up there and he did that? That was just amazing. We should throw a banquet in his honor. Then we really move away from the pattern that Jesus gave us. You see, Jesus, in Matthew 6, Matthew 6, 1 through 4, we read, of a cautionary, cautionary uh, a delivery regarding being selfish and seeking conceit. He writes, Beware of practicing your righteousness before other people, in order that they be seen by, be seen by them, for then you will receive no reward from your Father who is in heaven. Verse 2, Thus, when you give to the needy, sound no trumpet before you, as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets, that they may be praised by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, so that your giving may be in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. 
See, this isn't telling us, man, don't do anything because you're going to be tempted to pursue selfish gains. This is a hard evaluation. This is Paul saying, man, look at your heart. When you do things, what is your main reason for doing it? Are you doing it so that God may be glorified or so that you might be recognized? His word is, evaluate your motives and service. Now Paul begins to move to, to counter this mindset. <clears throat> he says, on one hand, we've got selfish ambition and conceit. And on the other hand, the second half of verse 3, we've got humility. He says, but in humility, count others more significant than yourselves. Now as Paul writes this, he, he's dealing with a little bit of a problem on the part of the Philippians. But it's not, it's not a problem unique to the Philippians. You see, in the Greek culture, when Paul writes to them and he says, right, go out, practice humility, what he's offering is a bit of counter-cultural advice. You see, this Greek society that they live in, this Greek heritage that they appeal to, doesn't prize humility. When you look at character traits, uh, you know, humility's not going to make it on the list unless it's the guy that says, I'm the most humble man you know. Worship me now in my humility. They can get down with that. They can get down with that. But the guy that's just going around and he's got more of this Matthew 6, 1 through 4 mentality that does deeds in secret, that desires not to be recognized, they would look at that and say, why? What reward would I have if nobody knows that I'm doing it? What reward can I receive if nobody's even aware of my involvement? That's it. That's what he's going for. He says, in humility, consider others more worthy, better, more significant, worthy of more, value more, more esteemed. Whatever adjective you want to put beside it, it's positive. Put that when you think of others. Now here's the rub on this. Here's the difficulty of this. Just like it's easy to love people that are lovable, it's easy to love people that love you in return. You know, you pour out love on your child, they run around, they hug you on the neck. Man, that feels great. When we're working to consider others more significant than ourselves, I want you to think about the people that have wronged you. I want you to think about the people that have sinned against you. I want you to think about the people that have hurt you. That have hurt those that, care, that you care for. Think about those people. Think about those people that are hard to worship alongside with. <clears throat> because they continue to advance preference. They continue to advance their selfish ambition and conceit. Think about the vocal detractors of what we're trying to do. Are they in your mind? Now consider them more significant than yourself. You see, when we begin to understand the reality that my sins are what I'm responsible for, and I am a lowly sinner saved by grace, and that the ground is level at the foot of the cross, we begin to head towards being able consider others more significant than ourselves. 
See, Paul in this course corrective realizes that our, our bend, our, our tendency, is towards self-elevation. Now, I'm acutely aware of my faults, but even as much as I'm aware of those, there are things that I hide from myself, that I pretend that I do well, and sins I struggle with, that, to a certain degree, I don't even notice. But what I need to do is be more concerned that I be loving, that I be building up those around me, to be about the process of tearing myself down to get them just on level ground with me. You see, this is more considering the other person rather than tearing yourself down, thinking all the negative things you ever did to try and get you somehow to be balanced on the sheet. And humility considers others more significant than yourselves. And then in verse 4, he says, Let each of you not look to his own interests only, but also <clears throat> to the interests of others. Now, I was talking to Carol B. about this this morning, and I said, I said, I understand that translating is a difficult task, and I am by no means a Bible translator. But there are certain problems in the English language, certain inadequacies, that you just can't adequately express an idea carried in the original text. And so where Paul says, look, we just don't, we don't think of that as being a really you know, invasive procedure. We don't think of that as being something we give a whole lot of time to. Like any of you that have ridden in a car with a three-year-old and you're driving down the road and they say, look, 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 look. You're like, in what? Well, everything, everything is worthy to be looked at according to a three-year-old's vantage point. You see, when Paul writes here and he says, look, look not only to your own interest, but to the interest of others, what he's describing here is exerting effort in continually acquiring information. That we might exert effort in observing those around us in their interests. You see, I'm, I'm aware that, that we have... We have people that, that value, for instance, Justin, since it's his job in some ways, he values youth ministry more than music ministry. Or Patty values her time in Honduras possibly more than other things. Or Kelly works in the nursery. So we tend to value those things more, right? Those are our interests. Those are our skill sets. Those are the things we're, we're involved in. So as I've gone through and I've met with different teams in the church, this idea that this is just a great team. And every team is a great team. But Paul's word is, man, look at what other people are interested in. Look at what other people are involved in. And you want unity? Look at how you can build up the things they're doing. But what he's not driving at is that, that everybody else in the church takes a position of austerity that says, I won't be interested in anything other than the things you're interested in. You see, he's not trying to do away with opinion or skill set or giftings. But what he's trying to do is change the mindset that seeks from advocating just primarily the things you're involved with to recognizing the things that everybody's involved with. So that we might build each other up. So that we might work together. So even though that you might be particularly given to evangelism or to music or to youth or to discipleship or to small group ministry, or any other number of things you can be involved with. 
that your involvement with that, your interest in that, doesn't pull away from the main focus of 127, of letting your lives be worthy of the gospel, of standing firm in one spirit, striving together in unity, in humility, considering others more significant than yourself. Friends, we need to be about building up one another. We need to be about being unified for the gospel. Let me pray for you.